Hey, Dad, look what we found. Have you ever done that, kids, boys and girls? Ever gone to your parents and said, look what we found out here? Yes, I've done that before. But when, when the ten sons of Jacob came to him with what they had found, Jacob knew immediately what, he was talking, what they were talking about. You remember the story? Jacob had two sons that were his favored sons. There was Joseph, the older, and Benjamin, the sons of his favorite wife. And as they got older, there was, predictably, in such a family, sibling rivalries and disagreements and uh, jealousies and competition. And as, uh, as one day Jacob gave his son, Joseph, a special garment. What was it called? Coat of many colors. That's right. A multicolored garment, which must have been sort of like a very, very uh, unusual gift for a young boy to have. And there Joseph would be running around the family compound with his special coat standing out from all the rest. And that didn't help the jealousies or envies, did it? And then Jacob sent his sons off to a far country to graze their crops. And eventually Joseph was sent off to, to, uh, to check on their well-being and to send them some provisions. And you remember what happened? The ten brothers said, here comes that dreamer. This is our chance to get rid of him. And so they threw him into a pit first and eventually sold him to a bunch of traitors that were on their way to Egypt. And Joseph, the favored son of a wealthy patriarch, became a young slave in a foreign country. Well, they had to have some closure to this. I don't know why they felt burdened, probably because they knew the truth. Instead of just allowing their father to think that Joseph was just missing and go into his own investigation, they brought back this coat dipped in a goat's blood, and they showed it to their father and said, Father, look at what we found. And immediately, when Jacob saw that coat of many colors, mangled and torn and bloodied, immediately he knew the awful truth. Except it wasn't the awful truth. But immediately he thought he knew that Joseph was dead. Jacob had been deceived by his ten sons. And yet we find that Jacob was only receiving what he himself had given. Jacob himself had been a great deceiver. You remember the story? And uh, we'll look at that in just a minute. First of all, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, or you can just read off the screen, actually. Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. This is in the Ten Commandments, and it describes a part of the character of God. He doesn't want to have, well, he can't have others involved in our hearts if he's going to be on the throne of our hearts. We can't serve two masters. And he says, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those that hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here we find Jesus, or a description of God that is not simply a vindictive God. It's not that God is going to punish somebody for something their parents or grandparents or great-great-grandparents did. That's not what God is trying to say here. 
In fact, um, we can read elsewhere in the Bible, particularly in the book of Ezekiel, we, t- we talk about how a person is punished for his own sins, not somebody else's sins. That's a principle that God has, uh, has put in place. When we're talking about, at least when we're talking about the punishment of eternal death, the eventual punishment of the wicked, it's only for our own choices. But do you realize that there are consequences to our decisions that are far-reaching, even extending down into our family tree? If we were to figure that our decisions will extend to three or four generations, that means the decisions that I make today, that most of you make today, will continue to have repercussions down through about the year 2300 or so. We're going to continue to have generations following us, not because they are doomed by our decisions, but because they're influenced by our decisions. And what we see, what we see, if we were to do some research and to look into the family line of Jacob, and I know this is going to be a little small for some of you uh, sitting far back, but at the, at the top here we've, we, have, we have Hagar, excuse me, sorry. At the top here we have Hagar and uh, Sarah and Abraham. And of course Ishmael is cut off from from the, uh, from the family. He's not the, the favored son. But you remember, it all started out with Abraham lying. Do you remember that? Abraham lied twice about Sarah being his sister. Actually, it was half true, but it wasn't completely true. And um, he was being deceptive. Then we have Isaac, who was the favored son, and Isaac and Rebekah were married. Isaac also lies. In fact, you can read in Genesis 27 that many lies went back and forth between Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah was, in fact, lied lied to her her father Laban. Remember, they hid those images they stole from Laban's household. There was deceit practiced in the household of of Isaac. And uh, Isaac also had a favored son and a cut-off son, Jacob being the favored, Esau being the cut-off. And Jacob himself was a liar too. You remember what happened when he wanted to get the birthright? Well, he thought it was honestly his because he had traded it with Esau for a mess of pottage. But he wanted that, that birthright that he knew his father was about to give to, to Esau. And so he went, and you remember what he did? He covered his arms with animal skins because his brother was very hairy. I don't know if he was that hairy, but... Anyway, and he covered his neck with animal skins, and then he went, and I suppose he, he uh, put on his best impersonation of Esau's voice, and he tricked his father into giving him the eldest son's birthright. Jacob was a deceiver. Is it any wonder, then, that Jacob himself now is holding a coat which symbolizes deception? A coat which is a lie. A lie because the ten sons of Jacob all knew that they had not killed, or that Joseph was not dead, that he had not been killed by a wild animal, but they had sold him into slavery in Egypt. Perhaps one of the most remarkable parts of this story, and um, it goes along a little bit with our children's story today, perhaps the most remarkable part is that 30 years passed or more, however many years it was, And those ten sons kept this a secret. That's pretty remarkable. I think it was Benjamin Franklin once that said that uh, three people can keep a secret as long as two of them are dead. And imagine the ten 
Ten sons knew their brother's destiny. They knew what had happened to him, and years went by, and they never let the secret spill. It's pretty remarkable, and it's a pretty remarkable testimony as to how deeply ingrained the practice of deception had become in the family of Jacob. I think this is what Jesus is talking about, what God is talking about when he says, the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children into the third and fourth generation. It is not so much that God holds us accountable and we will be punished in the end for our grandparents' sins as much as it is that we learn. We learn from those who have gone before us. We learn from our family members. You see three things that are, that are current in all the generations here. You find deception, we've talked about. You find that there is a favored child in each generation, and you find that there is sibling rivalry. These are all things they learned from the previous generation. If we were to look a little further at another genealogy, if we were to look at the genealogy of David, and once again, we're, uh, we're um, remembering how he was uh, born. He was a son of Jesse. And uh, David, at one time, was known as a man after God's own heart. Remember that? But David had some problems. David had eventually become one who committed adultery and murder, and it seems as though um, he had a weakness for sexual sin. We find here that David had a number of, of uh, children. Well, first of all, he had a number of wives, right? Michal, Abigail, Ahinoam. Um, well, I won't try to read all of them here. But uh, the one who had been the wife of Uriah, who he killed, was Bathsheba. And uh, these two wives had children, one of them Amnon, and you remember what happened to Amnon. Amnon raped his younger sister, who was, this, who was the daughter of, of one of, of David's other wives, Absalom's sister Tamar. Absalom became angry with that, you remember, and Absalom murdered his own brother, Amnon. And... Uh, here we find, a, we find the exact same sins Absalom is uh, guilty of were first the sins of David. You notice that? Finally, we have uh, Solomon being born of Bathsheba, and Solomon himself had problems similar to David's. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had some addictions, we might say. And where did he get those? I'm not trying to say that we, he didn't have decisions to make, but you understand that there's a pattern here in the family of David. And David, or Solomon would have his own sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and Rehoboam would also have a heart evil against God. He would have 18 wives and 60 concubines. And uh, it was perhaps the weaknesses of the parents that led to the weaknesses of the children's that led to the division of Israel between a northern and a southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Do you understand what I'm saying here? There's a, there's a familial trait that is passed on as these, um, as these families go on and as boys and girls, young men and young women, learn the traits of their parents. You know, some time ago we had a message called Two-Thirds Blessed. You remember that? Where we talked about emotional health. And the, the fact is that too often we as Christians, we fail to allow God access to the parts of our hearts that we have segregated out as simply being who we are. Not, we, we don't think this is part of our spiritual well-being. We know God has domain over our spiritual 
portion of our life. But we, we try to segregate our life and compartmentalize our life and allow God to give us or allow God permission to help us with our spiritual well-being, but not so much often with our emotional well-being or with our physical well-being. We actually draw lines and say, God, you can have this much of me, but you can't have this part of me. That's a dangerous thing, and I'm not suggesting here that Christians do that intentionally. I think it's unconsciously, right? I'm not suggesting that we actually say, God, you don't have, but I hear it. I hear it. I hear it in the, in the form of excuses. I hear it in the form of excuses like, well, that's just the way I am. That's the way I've always been. That's my style of communications or of relationships. That's the way I grew up. This is the way my family is. You understand what I'm saying? And if we're going to be completely discipled in the family of God, if we're going to be restored to the image of God, we have to recognize that we are not just spiritual beings, we're not just physical beings, we're not just emotional beings, but we're all of the above. God made us in His image in this way. And the only way we can be restored is if we allow God to restore us in all of the areas of our lives. And if you didn't hear that sermon on two-thirds blessed. I'd recommend you either go on the website of www.daltonadventist.org and listen to it there or get a CD because it's, a, it's an important, I guess, a foundation for what we're talking about today. The fact is that emotionally healthy people understand how their past affects their ability to love Christ and others. The past does enter into our our understanding and our discipling as we become disciples of Jesus. We, uh, we also notice that emotionally healthy people realize from Scripture and life that an intricate, complex relationship exists between the kind of person they are today and their past. We did not come today, come to be who we are today simply out of a vacuum. We all were a product to one degree or another of the Decisions we've made, yes, but of the environments we grew up in as well. The, the, the people that we watched, the people that we learned from, the events that helped to shape our lives, they have helped determine who we are today. And we have to recognize this if we're going to be able to move forward and move past some of the weaknesses that we have inherited from others. Emotionally healthy people recognize that though numerous forces shape us, the family we grew up in, is the primary influence as to who we are today. Now, this is usually in very subconscious ways, but the very mannerisms we have, the way we think, the way we relate, the way we deal with conflict, the way we communicate, all of these things, especially in dealing with people, which is what life is all about, these are largely shaped by the families we grew up in. Now, I'm not asking here for us to be critical of our families. I'm not asking us to say, well, you know, I came from a terrible family because they had this, 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 and this mistakes. Listen, the fact is, we've all come into a broken world, amen? We've all come into homes as, as good or as bad, as well-meaning or as, as um, you know, disgraceful as they may have been. We've all come into a world, into families that have weaknesses. And so, I'm not here to say we should disparage our families or our past, and that's not my point at all. My point is that while we value our families for the strengths that they have, because all have had some, I think, while we value our families and our past for the strengths that we can find there, we also have to come 
face to face with the weaknesses as well. Not so that we can condemn them, not maybe even so that we can help them, but particularly so that we can help ourselves. You understand what I'm saying? Particularly so that we can grow beyond those weaknesses. Now, some of you may have been like me. Perhaps you, as a young person, maybe especially as a teenager, when you think you know everything, or at least I think I probably thought I knew most everything or had things figured out. I remember my dad telling me when I was a kid, he said, when I was in eighth grade, I thought I knew a lot. When I graduated from high school, I thought I knew everything. And when I graduated from college, I realized I knew nothing. And um, there's a little bit of a, there's, a, there's sort of a, 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 a pattern the lives take in a certain way, right? As a teenager, I probably thought I knew most, most of what I needed to know. And, and I found it very easy, as I think some other teenagers do, to criticize my parents, to say, my parents do this, my dad does this way, the way they relate is this way, and in, intrinsic in what I was saying as I criticized my family was the assumption that when I became an adult, I would be different. I wouldn't do those things. And I'm thankful by the grace of God, I don't have to. But the reality is, if I examine myself, I see that more often than not, I've simply become the, persons, the person that I had modeled for me. You understand what I'm saying? I've become, uh, not a clone, but I've become influenced by the traits of my parents. And perhaps many of you could relate to this. None of us grew up in a perfect home, and most of us saw the weaknesses of parents and vowed to be different, yet we often became the same. What does this mean for us today? What it means is that it's impossible to help people or help ourselves break free from the past without coming to an understanding of the families they grew up in. And so I want to um, invite you, I think the deacons have a, a little piece of paper that they're going to hand out at this time. And this is what I would call sort of a, uh, a, uh, a, a family... Uh, a, a little exercise to help you understand your family and the dynamics that existed. I'm not asking you to do this right now during the service. I'm asking you to take it home with you and to contemplate it afterwards, to take a look at, at what this, uh, this uh, sheet would help you to come to terms with. Because unless we comprehend the power of the past on who we are in the present, we will inevitably replicate those patterns and relationships inside and outside the church. And yes, I did say inside and outside the church, because in reality, if I could have one of those too, Chad, um, in reality, this, this background that influences us in our home also influences us in the church. Did you realize that? When we come to church on Sabbath morning, very often... We look very similar. I mean, we, 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 we've all brushed our hair and combed our teeth, or the other way around. We've all, you know, come looking presentable. We've all, you know, we all sing the same songs. We all read out of the Bible, but we come with these very, very vastly different ways of looking at the world, of thinking about things, of communicating and relating. And in fact, you could think of it this way. Instead of seeing one family coming into church 
as they walk in the front door, they drive in the parking lot, they, drive, they walk in the front door, you can sort of imagine instead of one family, mom, dad, two kids coming in, instead you probably are having six or seven or eight people coming in. You're having in-laws and parents and grandparents and there's a whole dynamic from generations that have funneled into this family that's walking in the front door, that's coming into this board meeting, that's coming into this, this family we call church. And doesn't it get interesting sometimes? Because of all our different diversity? It's a wonderful thing, and we're going to get more to this in a, in a minute. But I want, us to, I want you to take this home, and especially adults, children, you're probably not going to find as much value in this, but especially adults, in, I want you to... I want you to take some time to prayerfully and carefully and thoughtfully reflect on these uh, questions and see what things there might be in your life that are carry over a transference from generations past to the generation today. And from that, you can make your own family genogram, you could call it. Identify how your family has shaped you and ask yourself three essential questions here at the bottom of the sheet. What one or two patterns might emerge of how your family has impacted who you are today? Second, in what areas might you be shaping your life and relationships according to your past rather than according to Christ's family? And what hard work of discipleship might you have before you? This is, this is something that it doesn't just have to do with our mind, it has to do with our heart, it has to do with our relationships and the way we relate. And once again, unless we comprehend the power of the past on who we are in the present, we will inevitably replicate those patterns and relationships in our families and in our church. But today I want to I encourage you because there's good news in this story as well. While the Bible's very clear, and I think our own anecdotal evidence might support it well, that there is a transference of characteristics, of habits, of weaknesses from one generation to the next, the Bible is also very clear that those, those connections can be broken by the power and by the grace of Jesus. That we don't have to be the same person our parents were, same persons our parents were. We don't have to be enslaved by the same habits or addictions that we saw them struggling with. We don't have to be relating in the same destructive or at least combative or hurtful ways that we saw them relate and we learned to relate. We don't have to communicate in the same unproductive ways in which they did. Because not only did our parents have an influence in our life, there are other influences in our lives as well. And I'd like us to go one step further from our families and, and ask ourselves the question, many times when I'm talking to people who are struggling with, with, with even their spiritual walk, much less relationships, I find that there are events in their life, not necessarily family members, maybe outsiders, events in their lives or situations in their lives that have severely impacted them and left them, you might say, um, somewhat wounded or damaged, and they're still struggling to get over that. What are a few events or people that have impacted my, who I am today and that will help me understand what makes me tick? I want to give you a few examples as I've been studying and reading of this, of, of stories that I found. Um, one, her name was Joan, and she came to understand that a turning point in her life was a certain rejection in junior high school. 
Can you imagine? All the way back then, there was a turning point in her life from a certain rejection she had in junior high school that led her into a life of drug addiction. And in order for her to be discipled, she had to come to terms with that and to come to terms with the fact that though some people have rejected her, Jesus accepts her. Charlotte and Nathan were impacted by the trauma of war in their home countries and panic attacks and outbursts of anger, uh, a short fuse, are just two of the outcomes of those experiences that had to be addressed in their discipleship. Pierre, he had the experience of being wrongly classified as mentally challenged when in fact he was very bright, only dyslexic. And this caused him to struggle with trusting God and others years later in his life. Kevin's involvement as a soldier in Vietnam embittered him towards authority. And for decades afterwards, he had trouble dealing with authority figures and authorities in his life because of that traumatic experience in the past. Ron's fight to make it as a professional musician in the dog-eat-dog world of jazz contributed to his relentless perfectionism with himself. And not only with himself, but with others. Nobody could ever measure up. No one could ever be good enough. And he was constantly criticizing and beating down, finding fault with, and imposing his own ideas of what should be done on others. He battles to receive God's unconditional love and grace in Christ and give it to those around him. Ted's 12 years at a boarding school in New England make intimacy and family life difficult for him, even as a middle-aged father. And um, around the world, I've met many young people who went to boarding school at five or six or seven years of age. And it's a different world to grow up in. It's, it's, a, different, it's a different way to be raised, a different type of family. And while there are many good things that can be found, and some of them may have been orphans, etc., these, these, these um, events or circumstances impact our lives. They impact who we are. And in order for us to become whole and to be able to deal with them as disciples of Jesus, as Jesus would want us to, he asks us to recognize them. Kathy's autistic son has made her sensitive to families with a disabled member. And listen, these events can shape us not only for the worse, but also for the better. Amen. And uh, we can look back on these events that have influenced who we are today. What makes me tick the way I am. But a critical part of, a, of growing into maturity in Christ needs to include addressing those issues from our past and uh, how they impact who we are in the present, both positively and negatively. So the first is to sort of make an anag- uh, uh, a genogram of our family and see how the family, the home we, inv- we grew up in, impacted us. And Maybe some of us were impacted more one way or another by our homes. It's okay. The point is, we have to remember as we do this, Jesus accepts us just the way we are today. Amen? We can't change who we are. We can't change the past, but we can learn from it. We can refuse to be enslaved by it. We can, ref- we can break the link to the next generation by learning and allowing God to help us. The second is to discern other influences in our lives. And the third is my favorite. 
It's to be born into a new family. And I'd like for us to turn to our scripture today of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, this is the, a well-known passage for us today. This is a passage I'm sure most of us have read. But I want us to recognize that Jesus here is offering something very special for those of us who have born, been born into faulty families with some failures. And that's all of us. Jesus says in John chapter 3 and verse 3, Most assuredly I say unto you, unless one is born, how? Born again. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus here is talking not about a, 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 a birth again of a physical nature. He's talking about a spiritual rebirth, right? He's talking about being born of water and of the Spirit. These are two different aspects of being converted, and, and they're both very important aspects. You see, if, in order for me to be born again, in order for me to erase the past and to break the bonds that bind me to the past, that, that condemn me to continuing the generational failures that have been passed on through my family, in order for me to, to break that familial bond and be born into a new family, I have to be born, as Jesus said, of water and of the Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be born of the Spirit? You know, right? It means, it means that God, through His Spirit, through the power of His Spirit, something we can never completely understand, it's like the wind, we see it blowing in the trees, but we don't know where it came from or where it's going. We can't understand all of its workings, but we know it when we see it, when we experience it. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts. And that's an amazing, amazing experience. It's the greatest miracle I present to you, the greatest creative miracle that God ever performs. Second to none, that this old heart, this carnal nature, can have God, the God of the universe, the Creator God, speak new life into it so that I don't have to live the life I used to live. I don't have to have the weaknesses that I inherited from my parents. I don't have to have the same sins that I saw in my genealogy repeated in my kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. That is a miracle of divine grace, and the Spirit is promised to do that. That is what it means to be born again of the Spirit. Notice with me back in Ezekiel chapter 26. I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26. In fact, we'll read verses 25 and 26 as well as 27. Ezekiel chapter 36, Old Testament, near the end of the Old Testament, just before the book of Daniel. When you're there, you can say Amen. Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 26, verse 25. Then will I sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments." And do them. I would present to you this morning, beloved, that this is what it means to be born of the Spirit. It means to have the Spirit recreate in us a new heart. 
to have that Spirit not only taking the old stony heart out and giving us a heart of flesh, but living in us and indwelling in us and empowering us to walk in the ways of heaven. But we all know that while forgiveness may be instantaneous, while God's forgiveness is as soon as we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. While we know that God forgives us our sins, we also recognize that He does not usually, He does not usually erase in an instant all of the results of our choices in the past. He forgives us, but He does not necessarily undo the natural workings of cause and effect that have shaped us emotionally shaped us into who we are. And that's why, as we are born again by the Spirit, we also have a responsibility to open our hearts, our emotional side, our relationships, the way we deal with others in our homes, in our church family, open them up to the inspecting eye of God and allow Him to begin a process of discipleship that will make us more mature, not just spiritually, but emotionally, relationally as well. That's the good news of the message today. And as we have this, uh, this opportunity to be born again of the Spirit, I want us to recognize that Jesus said, unless a man is born again of two things, right? The Spirit and what else? Water. Being born again of water is what we, taught, what we saw today, right? A baptism. David, born again of water. This is not a ceremony that has intrinsic value in itself. You understand? There's nothing holy about the water that David was baptized in. There wasn't anything, it's not that there's anything holy about the preacher that baptizes him. What is important about baptism is that it is a public expression of faith in God. It is a public expression of faith in God, and it is the means by which, listen to me carefully, it is the means by which in the New Testament believers were born into a new family. Are you with me? When we are born again by water and the Spirit, we're not only changed by a miracle we call conversion, being, our, our hearts being transformed, but we are born again. We are reparented into the family of God. God has placed the church here on earth because we need each other. I should hear an amen after that. I know it's not always the prettiest. We have all of our different backgrounds. I understand. But we need each other as we, as we relearn how to communicate in God's way, how to love in God's way, how to be honest and frank and, and, and open with each other in God's way, and we model for each other and for our children how a family ought to operate. We need each other. And friends, there's nothing much more exciting than knowing that we're born spiritually into the new family of God, but also we're born, we're born literally into a family who loves us and cares for us, in which there's accountability, in which there's, there's support. And if we've not had that in our earthly family, we can find it in our spiritual family. That's what God intends. Are we family? Yes. We ought to be. We really ought to be. 
The New Testament describes Christians becoming, uh, 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 describes becoming a Christian as a spiritual rebirth through which we are adopted into a new family, the family of Jesus. Learn with me to Mark chapter 3. This is a fascinating passage, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, Jesus is teaching one day, and his family, his mother and his brethren, come to speak with him. Perhaps he knew that they were about to rebuke him for his method of ministry, for his variance from the scribes and the religious leaders. And we notice in verse 31, his, mothers and his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him. Mark chapter 3, verse 32. And a multitude was sitting around him. And they said, look, your mother and your brothers are, looking, are outside seeking you. But he, that's Jesus, answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? <laughs> Sounds like a silly question, Jesus. And then pointing to those who were sitting around him, he says he looked at this in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother." And my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. You see, my friends, Jesus says we are born into a family, a family that we are asked to recognize as even more closely bound to our hearts than our literal biological families. Uh, Roy Anderson, Dennis Guernsey, in their book on being family, says it this way. The church is the new family of God. Through spiritual rebirth, we each become brother or sister of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Oh, it just it sends chills up and down my spine. We each become brother or sister of Jesus Christ through adoption into the family of God. Consequently, we are brother and sister to each other. Husbands and wives are first of all brother and sister in Jesus Christ before their husband and wife. Sons and daughters are also brother and sister to their father and mother before their sons and daughters. You see, my friends, the, the, the relationship with, uh, with us to each other as spiritual brothers and sisters ought to be even nearer and dearer and more highly treasured than even our biological family. Because Jesus says it this way, any man who loves father or mother more than me, brother or sister more than me, is not worthy of me. In other words, when we're reborn into the family of God, our highest commitment as a brother of our older brother Jesus, as a son of the living God, our highest commitment is to that family, even above our biological family. Oh, friends, I think sometimes we've got to rethink how we do church. We have to rethink our relationships. We're so, you know, they say, they say blood runs thicker than water. You ever heard that? That means, <laughs> well, I don't know what it means originally, but the way I interpret it to mean, I interpret it to mean something along the lines of, be careful what you say about somebody's family. Because even if you're friends, blood runs thicker than water, right? We ought to be so defensive of our brothers and sisters in Christ that there would not be a word of gossip uttered from our lips. Because they're family. 
And it doesn't matter the weaknesses. It doesn't matter their, their, their backgrounds. It doesn't matter their, their wounds and bruises from the battles they've been in and the events they've been a part of and the biological families. They, listen, we are family. And the family of Christ ought to be tighter than any human family because our first commitment is to him. And I'll tell you this right now. If you're not tight like that with your brothers and sisters in the church, you are not tight like that with Jesus. No one can love Jesus supremely and others as themselves, as he's asked them to, and be destructive of other people in their relationships. And that's why God calls us higher. God calls us to discipleship that is painful at times, that means work at times, but requires us to be honest with ourselves and honest with our past and allow God to disciple us, to heal us, and to make us the people He wants us to be. And so I believe that God here is calling us higher the critical factor that most significantly determines my identity as a Christian, my new identity as a Christian, is not the blood of my biological family, but the blood of Jesus. We are given a new name, a new inheritance of freedom and glory and hope, resources a hundredfold, a new power of the Holy Spirit to live in this new life as a new person. We become partakers of the divine nature, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us, able to enjoy the absolute security and stability and freedom and intimacy and confidence in prayer of children in God's family. There exists a new dynamic within me of the life that God places inside me as I grow in Him. And so God gives me this opportunity to become a part of the children of the family of God. He gives me a chance to be reparented, as it were, to be reborn in a new family, in a new home, the, the family of God. What a privilege that is as believers in Jesus. Why isn't this happening? Perhaps because as I mentioned, while God forgives the past, He doesn't always erase the natural effects. And that takes some time. It takes some healing. And we understand that. And we, we understand that in our own situation. We ought to be more understanding of it in others' situations. Amen? We understand that we don't get over the baggage of our past at the snap of a finger. God forgives it. Praise God. We come to Him with full confidence as a child of the King. But we recognize that we need His continued help to overcome some of those weaknesses. We recognize that. God's intention is to heal our brokenness, to patch up our wounds, and to make us, as we become transparent and open and honest with one another, make us agents of transformation for others. That is what the church is meant to be. A family, a family of people can be honest about their own mistakes, their own weaknesses, and yet empowered by the grace of God to help others to learn. Discipleship must include honest reflection on both the positive and negative impact of our family and other major influences in our lives. I want that experience. How about you? We come into the family of God with broken bones and wounds, legs shot up in the war of life. God says, I want to heal you. 
I want to heal you. I want to, I want to, I want to rehabilitate you. I want to restore you. And even the scars you will bear will be used by me to help give courage and strength and hope to others. In fact, Paul says it, I think it's 2 Corinthians first chapter, he says, the trials and the troubles we go through, God allows so that we can help others who go through trials of any sort. In other words, no matter what you've been through in your past, no matter what your background might be, I believe God has a special purpose for you and a plan for you. And there are going to be people that only you will be able to help through their difficulties because you can relate to them. You understand? And that's the wonderful thing about what God wants to do with each one of us. It's not just with the pastor. No. It's with each person born into the family of God. You know, as a as a preacher, I have... I have a desire to just tell the whole world what Jesus can do. And I can I can sort of relate to the to the to the deathbed confession of this Hasidic rabbi. Come to the end of his life. And this is what he said. He said, When I was young I set out to change the world. When I grew older I perceived that this was too ambitious. So I set out to change my state. This too, I realized as I grew older, was too ambitious, so I set out to change my town. When I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. Now as an old man, I know that I should have started by changing myself. And who knows, if I had started with myself, maybe then I would have succeeded in changing my family, the town, or even the state. Who knows? Maybe even the world. I'd like to have that experience. How about you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, today we recognize we're broken people from a broken past. And we've got scars, wounds, our legs have been shot up, and we've got we've got the, the baggage that we carry. And we don't just carry it into our homes, we carry it into the church. And Lord, we just, we want to say today, we want to give you permission to reach deep into our hearts, even the parts of our hearts that we've always defended as just being who we are. It's the way I am, it's the way my family is. It's just, Lord, if it's destructive, if it's hurtful, Lord, you need permission to change even that. Lord, we want to break the chain that our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren won't be influenced by our negative decisions, but in fact will be, ne- will, be po- will be influenced by our positive choices. We know this requires a new birth into the family of God. Today we thank you that you offer that new birth to each one equally. You offer and invite us to be born into your family, born by spirit through the spiritual conversion that, that, that you only can give and born by water into the literal family of God here on this earth that can help us to grow and relearn and become the people that you want us to be. Lord, today I want to pray. I want to pray that we might be family here. I pray that you'd forgive us. Forgive us where we've loved ourselves more than our brothers and sisters. For therein we have demonstrated that we love ourselves more than you. 
Forgive us for where we have excused our hurtful behavior or habits, patterns, because it's just who we are. And help us to be changed by a miracle of your grace to become not who we are, but who you want us to be. Restore us spiritually, physically, emotionally. We ask for this miracle. We thank you for it. And we thank you for the privilege of being sons and daughters of God today. In the wonderful name of Jesus, our older brother, we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.